Father, we do ask that you'd speak to hearts, and we thank you for our children and your, your love for the children and your desire to see them really walk in your ways. We pray you would just speak to hearts now, and you'd raise up all the workers, Lord, that we need to really be good stewards of really training our children and how to walk with Jesus, we pray in his name. We also ask that you would speak your word to us, each one of us, and change our lives today by the power of your spirit. pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been doing this series entitled New Beginnings. It's a series out of the book of Genesis, which is a book of new beginning. It's the first book in your Bibles. And so far, what we've covered, I want to just do a little, little bit of a review here. As we start off in chapter 1, in the story of creation. And in that story, we saw that God took that which was formless and void, and he gave it form and he gave it fullness. He took that which had disorder and emptiness, and he gave it order and fullness. In fact, if you want to look at this, if you've not ever thought about it, we, sh we showed you that the first three days of creation, God is moving everything from disorder to order. Then the next three days of creation, God moves everything from emptiness to fullness. And that really is how God tends to work. He tends to move things from, or, from disorder to order before he moves it from emptiness to a state of fullness. And by the way, God wants fullness for all of us. God wants fullness for us. He wants to change our emptiness in whatever area of life you might have some emptiness. He wants to change that and bring you to a place of fullness. But we must first cooperate with him by moving from a state of disorder to order. That's typically how God works. He, we have to cooperate with him and get some things in order, his order, so he can change our emptiness to fullness. And so we saw that pattern and we applied that to a number of areas of, of our lives and how that works and how God works. And that was Genesis chapter 1. And then we went to Genesis chapter 2. We saw that God made man and then he made woman for the man. And it says he brought her to the man. It's very poetic in the Hebrew, the original Hebrew. And God actually is walking Eve down the aisle and giving her hand uh, to Adam. So what we see happening here is that God intended for marriage to be for our fullness, a blessing for the man and the woman. But in order for the marriage to experience the fullness of the blessing, that married couple needed to cooperate with God on his order for marriage. And so we spent some time talking in Genesis chapter 2 in our, our message there about what was God's order for marriage to be. I mean, God wanted a husband and a wife, clearly we see this, he wanted them to experience oneness. Because once a husband and wife, once you're married, once you say, I do, and then the marriage is consummated, from that point on, the husband and wife are one flesh, the Bible says. Now, we're still walking around in two bodies and two minds, two personalities, but something has happened in reality, in the spiritual dimension that we're now one. And what that means is, as one flesh, that we can no longer have any more win-lose situations. We either win-win or we lose-lose because we're one flesh. Well, this one flesh principle we see in Genesis chapter 2, the Apostle Paul takes that principle and in Ephesians chapter 5, he builds his whole chapter, this whole section of chapter 5 on the role of a husband and wife is all based on the one flesh principle. And what Paul teaches there is that the way a husband and wife win-win, the way you follow God's order so you can have fullness, the way you win-win is by the husband making sure the wife feels loved. Because a woman primarily, her self-esteem, her satisfaction, her fulfillment is, is really determined on whether or not she feels loved. And so God set up marriage in such a way that the woman would really feel loved and she would win and she would be happy. And the way the man feels satisfied and fulfilled is whether or not he feels respected. So the way God set up these, this one flesh principle to work in a marriage so that win-win is that the wife feels loved by the husband and the husband feels respected by the wife. 
That's God's order. And when that order is followed, then there's a win-win situation. And that husband and wife are happy. They're satisfied. They're fulfilled. And that is a marriage that continues to build in romance as they keep win-winning by really walking out this love and respect relationship. Now, the, the opposite is also true, that if you do not follow God's order, instead of win-winning, you lose-lose because the wife does not feel love, the husband does not feel respected. You lose-lose, lose-lose. Because you left God's order in your marriage, you no longer experience fullness, you experience emptiness. And that's why we have statistics like half the marriages in the country end in divorce, and the rest of that statistic, by the way, is the half that stays married, 70% of them wish they weren't married to who they're married to. So we have horrible statistics here. Why? Because God's order is being violated. And the one flesh principle of win-winning, making sure that the wife feels loved and the husband feels respected, is, is, is being violated. So there's disorder, and that disorder brings in the emptiness in the marriage, and people just think, let's give this up, let's get divorced. So it's so important that, and we saw in Genesis 2, that we follow God's order if we want fullness in our marriages. And again, the way we win-win is, is husbands, your wife needs to feel your love for her. She needs to feel it. And wives, your husbands need to feel your respect for them. They need to feel it. And if we live like that, then we win-win, win-win. That's God's order. And we live in fullness in our marriage. Well, that was Genesis chapter 2. And then we spent a message talking about Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the temptation account. Satan tempts Adam and Eve to sin. He tempts them to eat the forbidden fruit. That's the only way they could have sinned. There was one command, and they violated it, and they sinned. And, of course, with that came evil into the world, and all kinds of disorder came into the world. But I want to back up a little bit and remind you what's happening there and why it's happening. Because when you read Genesis chapter 1 and then Genesis chapter 2 and you get to Genesis chapter 3 and all of a sudden there's a devil tempting Adam and Eve to sin. I mean, why is he there? Why does he care if Adam and Eve sin? What's all this about? So we need to back up a little bit and understand what is happening here. What's happening here is God, first of all, made angels before he made mankind. He made angels and he made all the angels good. God didn't make good angels and bad angels. God didn't make angels and demons. God made all the angels good. But the angels were tested. And there was an attempted coup on the throne of God led by the chief cherub, the highest ranking cherub angel, most beautiful, most powerful cherub by the name of Lucifer to try to take God off his throne. That's talked about in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13 and 14. Let's read it. But you said, it's talking to Lucifer, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I'll ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So that is the attempted coup by Lucifer. But by the way, that coup went nowhere. That was no contest. It wasn't like a hard fight for God. God easily cast Lucifer out of heaven and he cast him, the Bible tells us, down to the earth. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning. That's Lucifer, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. So the earth, remember, is where God is, is creating Adam and Eve. And he creates Adam and Eve, and he puts, and, he, and so he, they have a perfect fellowship and relationship with him, and he put them in charge of the earth. They're to rule over everything on the earth. Okay, where does it say that? Well, let's just read. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It's called, we can call this the creation decree, but here's what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them, here's the word, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And here's the word again, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So again, God made Adam and Eve, man and woman, in a perfect relationship with him in the Garden of Eden. Perfect fellowship. 
And he gave them the responsibility to rule over all of the earth and everything on it. But he also kicks Lucifer. And by the way, a third of the angels join him in his rebellion, according to Revelation chapter 12. He kicks him out of heaven to the earth. Now remember, Lucifer's ego is so gigantic, he thought he could take the throne of God. And then he's cast down to this little speck of dust in this little small Milky Way galaxy, little solar system, little speck of dust earth. And he's put where mankind has been given rule over the earth. So he now is under the feet of one of those creeping, crawling little creatures called man. How do you think he likes that? He doesn't like it. So now we see why he's motivated to try to get Adam and Eve to sin. Because if he can get them to sin, he can usurp their authority over the earth and he can rule the earth. Now that was, that's not his original desire was to rule everything, God's throne. But now it's what he will take. He wants to rule the earth. So now we see why he is on the earth, because he was cast down there. And now we see why he's tempting Adam and Eve to sin in Genesis chapter 3, because he wants to usurp their authority and rule the earth. Well, he tempts them to sin, and he's successful. They do sin. So he does now become the ruler of all the earth. The Bible says that. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, calls the devil the god of this world. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, calls the devil the prince of the power of the air. And 1 John 5, 19 says of the devil this, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So he got his kingdom. It's not really the one he originally wanted, but it's the one he's going to settle for. He's going to rule the earth. But how did the devil get man to sin? That's what we talked about in that message. What was his strategy? His strategy was very simple. If the devil could convince Adam and Eve that God was holding out on them, that God was not really good, if he could convince them that God is not really good, put that suspicion in their mind about the goodness of God, if he could convince them that God is not good, then God's word is not true. If God is not good, his ways are not good. And that's exactly how the temptation account works. He convinces Adam and Eve that God's not really good. He's holding out on them. He doesn't want them to have all they can have. And so he convinces them that they should go against God's order, God's ways, God's command. And he convinces them that if they go against God's order and do it the way he's suggesting they do it, they will actually receive fullness. And it's a lie. So they violate God's order they break the command, they eat the forbidden fruit, and as a result of that, sin enters in. They lose fellowship with God, they eventually get thrown out of the garden, and Satan now rules the earth. And by the way, anytime, anytime we go against God's order, it never brings fullness. It always brings emptiness. The devil still uses the same strategy, convinces you, but, you know, do it this way. Do it different. Well, that's not God's way, but that'll work. It'll work. It'll, be, it'll make you happy and fulfilled, and it never works. Every time we, we, we violate God's order and go to disorder, we always go from fullness to emptiness. We, it never works the other way. I don't know how many guys, let's ask for a true confession. How many guys woke up at 4 in the morning and watched the royal wedding yesterday? Go ahead and admit it, okay? Several of you in first service as well. Okay, I want to go ahead and put that, uh, that uh, slide up there. The royal wedding, it was like considered just a fairy tale. It was so beautiful. So many people just oohed and awed about it. And it was. It was, it was quite, uh, quite a beautiful thing to, to see parts of. I saw some clips later in the day about it. But let me ask you this. Here they have, they, are, they, they, they take off in a $500,000 Jaguar. They're going to live in a royal palace. They're going to have more money than they could ever spend, even if they tried. They're going to be considered special the rest of their lives, royalty. So let me ask you the question. Will they live happily ever after? That's up to them, what they choose. If they choose 
God's orders. You've got to have God's order to have God's fullness. But if they choose to go a different way than God's order and they choose disorder, they will end up with emptiness. I don't care what else they have. It's guaranteed. It always works that way. It always works that way. I was going back to Genesis chapter 3 because Adam and Eve are deceived. They're deceived by the devil. And as they do that, sin enters in and all creation goes into disorder. There's now disorder in God's ordered creation. With Adam and Eve's sin, death enters into the world. By the way, death is not part of God's order. Death is disorder. The biblical understanding, of course, of death is separation. And separation in so many ways. I want to explain it to you. Francis Schaeffer, uh, he wrote a book entitled Genesis in Time and Space. And he points out several areas of separation that resulted from Adam and Eve's sin. So let's go through some of them. Number one, the first kind of separation was there was psychological separation. What we're going to say here is that man was separated from himself. Basically, man doesn't like himself anymore. Genesis 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Understand, up to this point, there was no shame and guilt. There's no such thing as shame and guilt up to this point. But now they sin, they don't even like themselves. I mean, they're ashamed of themselves. So the virus of sin introduced all kinds of psychological problems now into, into mankind. Low self-esteem, poor self-image, the self-consciousness we battle with during our days, all comes because sin entered in and there's a psychological separation. Well, there's a second kind of separation that occurs when the sin enters in, and that's what we're going to call spiritual separation. Man is separated from God. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Now, again, before Adam and Eve sinned, they felt comfortable in the presence of God. They felt comfortable in their fellowship with God. But now they feel uncomfortable with God. Why? Because they feel guilty. They don't want to be in God's presence. That's why they're hiding from him. By the way, all spiritual estrangement that people feel today, all the emptiness, all the dead-end searches down one religion after another all disrespect for the Bible, all disinterest in church, all dislike for righteous people, all that stems from Adam and Eve bringing sin into the world. And there's actually this spiritual separation occurs. So that's another aspect of the death that came into the world. All right, there's a third one. There's social separation. Man was separated from his fellow man. So now we have Marital conflict, and then we also, but the entrance of sin came to all kinds of social separation. Genesis 3, verse 11 and 12. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So Adam took it like a man. He blamed his wife. What Adam essentially says here is, wait a second, I'm the victim here. I'm the victim here. She made me do it. In fact, God, you gave her to me. So it's your fault that I did it. But with the interest of sin comes in marital strife, divorce, lawsuits, gossip, hatred, wars, all kinds of things like that are introduced now into the world because of sin. But it doesn't stop there. There's a fourth way. That's followed by environmental separation. The actual environment itself is going to be chaotic because of sin entering in. Genesis 3, verse 17, God said to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree which I commanded you, commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you. 
and you'll eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. So now when it enters the sin into the world, the whole world system is, is thrown off kilter. Now we got weeds and erosion and floods and droughts and volcanoes and earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes and bad bugs and viruses. All this is introduced because of sin coming into the world. Again, all this, I want you to notice, all this is disorder. It's not God's original order because of sin coming into the world. In fact, the Bible says in the New Testament, all creation is groaning, longing for the Redeemer to come and make things right and put it back into order to redeem creation. I came across a, a photo I just got to show you. I thought it was just uh, so appropriate here. Uh, go ahead and show the screen shot. Here we have, this is the big island in Hawaii. And you have volcanic ash spewing out, rocks being thrown, and this guy is concerned about his golf shot, whether or not it's going to be made to green or not. I just thought, that's like the verse, it'll be like the days of Noah. All kinds of things will be getting more and more chaotic because as the, as the earth groans for its redemption, the groaning, part of the groaning is going to be like you know, the pains of childbirth, like labor pains, it's going to be, they're going to be increasing in intensity and frequency. As, the, as all creation is groaning for the Redeemer to come, we're going to see more and more natural disasters increase in intensity and frequency on the earth. In fact, uh, Friday evening, Tracy and I were, were at the house, and I was leaning up against the, the, the counter, the wall, we are talking, all of a sudden I thought, I thought a truck ran into our house. It just, Bam! And pictures fall off the wall. And then we find out a little later in the news that an earthquake happened up toward Lillian, southwest of here, and we felt it. How many guys felt that? Any of you feel it? Yeah, several, several people felt it as well. But you're thinking, an earthquake here? But, you know, the Bible says everything that can be shaken will be shaken. So that that which cannot be shaken, the kingdom of God, it will remain. And so more and more, we're going to see creation groaning for its redemption. The reason it's groaning for its redemption is because of, of the interest of sin into the world. It's longing for the Redeemer to come and make it right. And finally, there was physical separation. Man was separated from his own body. Now, what do we mean by that? What we mean by that is now mankind is going to die. Genesis 3.19 God says, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So Adam and Eve, from that point on, are now going to go through the aging process, and they're going to die, and they do die. You know, Adam and Eve die physically. And ever since that time, every person ever born it goes through the aging process and is heading toward death. All of us are headed that direction. All of us. Why? Because of the interest of sin into the world. That disorder that was brought about by their disobedience. So all that, all those, all five of those, you know, different aspects of, of separation, of death, entered in. Because they, have not, they disobeyed God's command, God's order. So their cooperation with disorder brought about emptiness in every way. That's what I want you to see. We follow God's order, there's fullness. You, you bring in disorder, there's emptiness. It always happens. And we see it ultimately upon the earth when sin enters in. So but I want you, what I want you to notice, though, is even in the midst of that state now, the state of separation that they're experiencing, you know, what is God going to do? Well, God, God starts his pursuit. He still pursues Adam and Eve. And as he's trying to, and he's pursuing them, what are they doing? They're hiding. By the way, that's always been the case. You know, the only reason any of us know God today and are walking with him is because God pursued us when we were hiding. God came after us and pursued us. Relentlessly, he's pursued us. So he pursues Adam and he asked him a question. Here's the question he asked. This is, this is exactly how it's written in Hebrew. Did you, from the tree I commanded you not to eat from, eat? That's how he asked the question. Did you, from the tree I commanded you not to eat from, eat? 
See, the question was whether or not he ate, but the way he asked the question is he wanted to remind Adam that this was a violation of the command that he did. So Adam, Adam's confession is delayed as he tries to transfer blame to God and to the woman. And he says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, in other words, it's your fault. You know, she gave it to me, so it's her fault. But then he finally does say it. He finally confesses. He says, I ate. And then the Lord's question to the woman is very emphatic. What is this you have done, he says. It's like, what in the world have you done? And again, the woman transfers responsibility, in this case, to the serpent. Says the devil made me do it. By the way, both Adam and Eve were correct in what they said in some ways, but it, but it didn't relieve them of responsibility of obeying. Ultimately, Eve's confession comes out, and she says, and I ate. So they both confess. So here's the question. What will God do with these humans he still desperately loves? What will he do with them? These humans that he pursues, what's he going to do with them? These humans who brought sin in and messed everything up, who brought all this disorder in and all this emptiness, what's he going to do? He does two things. Number one, he makes a promise. And number two, he makes provision. So first, the promise. Now, before God pronounces the consequences of Adam, Adam and Eve's disobedience, he actually pronounces a curse on the devil. He curses the devil. And as he's cursing the devil and rebuking the devil, in that, there's a promise to mankind. Look at it. Genesis 3, verse 15. Remember, he's talking to the devil. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Remember, he's talking to the devil. He, the seed of the woman, shall bruise you, devil, on the head. And you, devil, shall bruise him, the seed of the woman, on the heel. So what is this promise? What God is promising, and this is amazing, before we even leave chapter 3 of Genesis, God promises he's going to send a deliverer. He promises he's going to send a savior. And, the sa and this savior is going to be a man, seed of the woman. It's going to be male. He, he is a, the pronoun ma ma matters there. He is going to crush the devil's head. Now, remember, there's two things that we had with God in the garden. Mankind had. We had fellowship with God and we had ruling the earth, responsibility to rule the earth. When sin comes in, both those things are lost. Fellowship with God is lost because of our sin and mankind is cast out of the Garden of Eden, and the devil usurps his authority and rules the earth. But what this promise is, this promise right here in Genesis 3.15 is that God's going to send a deliverer and win back those two things. That deliverer is going to provide a way for forgiveness of sins so we can have fellowship with God again. And that deliverer is going to come and put the devil back under the feet of a man, the God-man. Jesus of Nazareth. And all this happens when Jesus hangs on the cross and takes our sin upon him. When he takes our sin upon him, absorbs the judgment, he is dying the death we deserve. The wages of sin is death, and he's dying. He's paying the wages so we can have forgiveness of sins. But he's also defeating the devil. He is putting the devil back under his feet. Now, it wounds him. He goes through great suffering and dies in our place but he defeats the devil and the resurrection proves the cross was successful. Now this, this prophecy fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth is talked about in the Bible that these two things are one back. In fact, I want you to notice where it says this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 says this. Since then children share in flesh and blood. That's all of us. We share in flesh and blood. We're all human. He himself, talking about Christ, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He became a human. That through death, his death on the cross, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. See, there is a, there is a cosmic victory over the powers of darkness at the cross. Verse 15, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives, and our deliverance comes through it. But also Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. Again, think of those two things, fellowship with God and ruling the earth. Both of those are lost at the fall with the entrance of sin. 
But Jesus came, comes to win both those back. Forgiveness of sins, we can have a relationship with God again and ruling the earth. As we are in Christ, everything is under his feet. Colossians 2, verse 13, here it goes. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. There's the first part, forgiveness of sins through the death of Christ on the cross. Next part. Cosmic overthrow of principalities and powers of darkness. Here it comes, verse 15. When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Rulers and authorities, words like that, those are the kind of words the Apostle Paul used in Ephesians chapter 6, talking about spiritual powers of darkness. They're defeated at the cross. So at the cross, Jesus dies in our place for forgiveness of our sins. And... He disarms, discredited, and defeats the devil and his rebellious counterparts. So the victory predicted all the way back in Genesis 3, verse 15. That that Savior, that Deliverer predicted, that is fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth when he hangs on the cross of Calvary. And when he does that, he provides forgiveness of sins because he bears our judgment and he puts the devil back under the feet of the man, the God-man, the devil is now under his feet, defeated. And so that's good news. And by the way, this is Pentecost Sunday. That is the good news that needs to go out all throughout the world out there, that, that there has been a Savior sent, a deliverer, and he's come, and he's made a way for forgiveness of sins so we can know God. He's also defeated the devil so we don't have to be under his bondage anymore. Now, after Adam hears this promise, here's what I want you to notice now. Adam does something very interesting. I want you to think about this. We're still in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve are are experiencing the separation of death entering into the world and all of its different dimensions. They're experiencing it. But he hears the promise of a deliverer coming. And here's the next thing he does in verse 20, Genesis 3 verse 20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. I just want you to think about that dynamic for a moment. They're experiencing all the dimensions of death, separation, emptiness because of sin entering in. They hear the promise and delivery is going to come and make it right. And after hearing the promise, he names Eve literally life producer. That's the name he gives her, life producer. Because out of her would come, I believe he's seeing more than just she's going to have babies and there's going to be life on earth. I think he's thinking more about through her is going to come, the deliverer is going to bring life back where death is now reigning. Now, I do believe, let me tell you why I believe Adam is expressing faith here by this step, what he does. You know, faith in the promise of God to send a deliverer who's going to make things right. Why, he's, why I believe he had faith? Because what happens next? Genesis 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So now God makes provision. He gives a promise, now he makes provision. Up to this point, Adam and Eve are covering themselves with what? Leaves off of bushes and off of trees, right? But God does something quite different to cover them. Garments of skin imply that an animal or animals lost their lives in order for those skins to be used for the covering of Adam and Eve. Now hang with me here. I got more I want you to see why this, is, this makes sense. See, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Well, Adam and Eve had to learn that sin could not be covered by a bunch of leaves snatched from a bush as they walked by. There must be death to atone for sin. And of course, this death of animals in the place of Adam and Eve prefigured the death of Jesus that he would eventually come and die on the cross as is promised. He would come and die for us, die in our place instead of us. Now, why do I believe all this is happening here? Well, in the next chapter, we have Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel are offering sacrifices to God in worship. Genesis chapter 4. They would not have known the need to worship or sacrifice, much less how to do it had they not been told by God. 
probably through their parents. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, it says that Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. Well, faith, the Bible says, comes by hearing the word of God, right? That means Abel must have had some revelation from God which, that he based his faith on. He must have known the place and the time and the way in which God wanted the sacrifice for sin to be offered. He, could, this, he didn't dream this up. It was revealed to him. It had to be. Now, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with grain offerings or fruit offerings. The Mosaic Covenant included such offerings. But the blood offerings dealt with sin. Blood offerings. By the way, the life of faith always begins with a sacrifice for sin. Our, when we believe in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, his sacrifice for our sin, and we trust in that, that begins our life of faith. Life of faith always begins with sacrifice for sin. It begins with believing God, first of all, that we're sinners that need a Savior. We're sinners who are worthy of death. We need his forgiveness, and we accept his revealed plan for our deliverance. Now, when Abel does this, Abel reveals obedience and knowledge. He acknowledges his sinfulness by bringing a lamb. He brings a lamb. Abel does. Sacrifices the blood of a lamb. That lamb dies. Abel brings one lamb. By the way, all this prefigures Jesus dying on the cross. I want you to see Abel brings one lamb for one person. Then later on the Passover, they bring one lamb per one family. Then later on, Day of Atonement, they bring one lamb for the whole nation, one nation. Then later on, John the Baptist sees Jesus walking. What does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. So the animal skins that God provided for Adam and Eve came from animals that died in their place. But all that was a foreshadowing of the one who would come and die in our place, Jesus. It's all looking forward to that deliver promise in Genesis 3.15. But I want you to think about this. They, they were, Adam and Eve were to wear those skins every day. Every day, wear those skins, remember this truth. The wages of sin is death. And never forget that God promised he's sending this deliver, and we're looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. They look forward to it, and all the people before Christ look forward to that promise. And now we look back toward it for what was done on the cross for us. But this deliverer, this Savior, is also a king. He came not just to put the devil under his feet and rule. He came to put everything under his rule. He is, he is ruler over everything. Everything in the universe. In fact, here's what it says, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 through 23 says, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So this is after the death and resurrection of Christ. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. Verse 21, far above, look at this, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things, all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the question we don't want to ask is, I'm going to ask the question, do you know him as your Savior? But do you know him as your Savior King? Because that's what he is. He's Savior King. You know, one of the most horrifying passages in the Bible, I think, is in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23, this is a, I always say this is not a refrigerator verse. You never see this on a magnet on a refrigerator. It's no warm fuzzies here. Jesus is speaking here and he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven, many will say to me on that day, many will say to me on that day. That means probably, there's probably people in churches all over this globe right now that are part of that many. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, 
you who practice lawlessness. I can't imagine a more horrific moment than that. You're standing at heaven's gates, sure you're going in, and find out you are not coming in and you're gone forever. Depart from me, I never knew you. He says many will be horrified on that day, many. So the question I think it's fair to ask, those of you that are here and also live streaming is, are you part of that many? Are you sure you're not? I mean, you think about that group he's talking to that said, Lord, Lord, they took, the, they, took the, they took his name on their lips. You know, they were participating in religious activities. They said they did all these things. You know, they probably would have agreed to the creed that we consider orthodox Christianity. And yet they're lost. What does it mean to confess Jesus as Lord? I mean, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus came preaching this in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is available. The kingdom of God is available. What is the kingdom of God? It's the rule of God. It is, it is the rule of God. Everything under the rule of God is part of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, repent, turn, turn around. The kingdom of God is available. You can come up. You can get in the kingdom of God. It's available. How? You make a resolute decision. What's your decision? You embrace this kingdom. How? By embracing this king. That's how. Repent and embrace this king. Here's what Jesus says, as plain as he can say it. Matthew, Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 38. He says this. It says, and he summoned the multitude with his disciples. He's talking about Jesus. He summons the multitude with his disciples. So he's got the whole crowd. And said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, if anyone wants to be my follower, Anyone wishes to come after me, you want to be my follower? Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So now Jesus is explaining what he means by really repent and believe. It's a radical thing to repent and believe. To believe in this Savior King is a radical thing. To really believe in him is to say, he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall, shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel shall save it. Oh, those who save their, li save their lives, those who hold on to it, I got control. It's all about me. It's still my agenda. It's still my life. You will not be king over me. I want you to be my savior, but not my king. I will not lose my life. Jesus says, if you hold on to your life like that, then you lose it. You lose your life. You die to you know, deny yourself, take the cross, die to self. Then you save it. Verse 30 says, for what does a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Forever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation. The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Jesus says those who would be his followers must deny themselves, take their cross, follow him. Die to self. I can't, he can't be my king unless I die to myself. Die to yourself. Count yourself dead that Christ can live and reign in you. Cross-bearing, dying to self involves... The question of lordship, rulership, kingship. He is both Savior and Lord. He is Savior King. You can't cut him in half. He is King. And he is, he's come to rule. He's come to rule everything. So here's a question I want to conclude with, and that is this. Have you done that? Have you asked Jesus to be your Savior and King, the Lord of your life? That's what moves our lives from disorder to order. And that's what moves our lives from emptiness to fullness. It's having, the, having him come and be our Savior, King. I want to invite the worship team up. As we close in prayer here, I just want to encourage you guys to think about where you are with him, really. I mean, if you really, I mean, I, I'm not asking have you made a profession when you're 9 or 16 or 25 or did you get baptized? Did you shake the preacher's hand? Did you raise your hand with every head bowed and every eye closed in one meeting? I'm not asking any of those questions. I'm asking right now, today, is he your Savior King? That's the question. Is he your Savior King today? That's the question. Can he rule your life today? Because he's coming to rule everything. Let's stand for prayer. As we sing this song, some of you, this might be the first time you've ever said yes to Jesus as your Savior King. 
as the one who has the right to rule and really surrender. The song is a song we sing around here a lot. It's I Surrender. And if this song is something you mean and you, and you mean it, then this, this, is a, this is the most important day of your life of really having him come and take control of your life and belonging to him from this day forward. Some of you, this might be a time of rededication. You said, yeah, I, I was committed years ago, but I, I've kind of slipped away. Now I'm still captain. I'm, I'm back to captain of my ship doing things my way. It's all about me again. And this would be a good time to rededicate yourself as we sing this song. Now you can use this front area. You can come and kneel or stand up here and say, Lord, I'm, just, I'm dedicating my life to you or I'm rededicating it as we sing this song. Let me pray. Father, you know exactly where everyone is in this room. I pray, I'm just asking in Jesus' name that by the power of your spirit, you'd break through every rationalization, every self-justification, every wrong theology, Lord, trying to somehow protect themselves and guard themselves. And just, I pray you would just leave us, let us all open, just laid bare before you, Lord, that we might truly do business with you. And none of us could leave here unsurrendered to you as our Savior King. In Jesus' name, as we sing this, just... Let's do business with the Lord.
Before I close in prayer and dismiss, just want to say those of you who'd like prayer, there'll be some leader couples up here in the front. We'll be glad to pray for you in just a moment. Also, those of you who are fairly new have questions for our staff in this far corner back here. There'll be some staff there. We'll be glad to answer questions. If this is your first Sunday here, come down here to our welcome area. I'd love to meet you myself before you pick up your kids. Stop by and say hi as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for how you pursue us. That you, you, you start your pursuit right away with mankind, right away with a promise, and Lord, and then you just you made a provision. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for his sacrifice. We thank you for making a way for us to have fellowship with you and us, again, to take our rightful place now, again, in Christ, Lord, in our, our place in ruling, Lord, with him now and forever, Lord. So we just pray you'd lead us and guide us in all this. We ask you, Lord, you use us this week. Lord, in all of our places of work and school and recreation and, and living, Lord, just use us to be shatter the darkness people as we walk as light of the world. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day and a great week.